This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Great to see you if you're a visitor. Um, it's really brilliant to have you with us. As uh, Mark said, my name's Howard. Mark Twain once said, and when he wrote a friend a letter, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. And if you think about it, uh, that's true, that we're all chasing time. And in my last series on vital signs, I want to talk about busyness, a time to rest, and a time to work. I would have made a PowerPoint But seriously, I kid you not, I have been too busy, (laughs) which is really pathetic, isn't it? Do you think this guy needs to really practice what he preaches? Uh, And I am trying, I seriously am trying. Uh, It was one of those weeks uh, again, and I don't know, we all have those. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, my week has been busy because, because it always has, hasn't it? Why don't you turn to the person next to you, my week has been busy because... Okay. Um, it was interesting. If you were to uh, take yourself back into medieval times, uh, our lives were shaped by the sun and the seasons. They were shaped by long-term rhythms of sun and seasons. We went to bed when it was uh, dark, got up early when it was light. Uh, we didn't really have, uh, you know, weeks and days, but actually now we've moved into, our, into time now of hours and minutes. And we're, we're governed by that. And it's interesting, I, uh, I read this quote from a historian uh, called Lewis Mumford. He said, the clock, not the steam engine, is the key machine of the industrial age. As new light bulbs turned night into day, factory workers lived under the relentless tyranny of the clock. So what used to happen is that you'd have agricultural workers who worked with the seasons, and then when the Industrial Revolution came, people crowded into towns, crowded into factories, and the factory owners uh, realised that actually just working by daylight was never going to be good enough. I think Henry Ford was the first uh, person to go into multiple shift patterns. He realised he could get three eight-hour shifts from his workers a day. Uh, making the Model T Ford, and what happened was that, that we, we became governed by clocks, large clocks, etc., uh, and so we've covered that one off uh, up for you, especially uh, today, and so we've got this sense of, of, of clocks, and we've got this sense of uh, make, trying to make time. In pre-industrial times, when fa- families lived together, played together, worked together, uh, the kids would often be schooled at home because they couldn't have a local school. The idea of making time for family was a really meaningless concept. But we now live in an industrial age where what happened is first men were taken out of the house into factories and then women, and we've, well, we find our workplaces stretched all over the town, all over the country. And so what happens is our families and our homes are left empty. 
and we feel the pressure uh, to find time. The fast pace of our life doesn't just reach into our workplaces, it reaches into our leisure time. So although the Victorians in factories would have worked for 60 hours a week, so, you know, before you moan and say how busy you were, they were doing 60 hours a week. Obviously, legislature now gives you 38 hours a week. But a lot of us are doing more work on top. We're, we're busy, we're answering emails, we're taking phone calls, we're checking our messages, our voicemail. We're working all the time. I don't know if any of you have ever, uh, and I must admit I'm guilty, checked work emails whilst on holiday. We do it all the time. It invades all the time. The smartphone, although it's great, is actually this tyranny of beep, you know, all the time available, all the time busy. And then what we've also got is a situation where more and more information's coming. So I, uh, a school teacher, I'm a governor at a school, and I worked out, went on the website of the government, and I worked out that if you're in education, the government has produced since 2010 384 separate pieces of legislation. So I don't know if you're a teacher and you've read all those pieces of legislation, but it's basically one a week. The amount of information required just to be on top of your job is crazy. Pressure of information. The information age intruding into our homes. I'm tired of labor-saving gadgets. You know, it's great to have the internet, but you have to keep rebooting it, rewiring it, kicking it, throwing it out the window. You know, you're, you're constantly sorting out your... This, that, and the other. Your printer doesn't work. This doesn't work. The computer doesn't work. My wife's great with computers, uh, and I have to keep helping her with that. And you're constantly doing that. A survey in 2004 said working parents spend twice as long dealing with their emails at home than they do playing with their kids. And actually, and so that was 10 years ago, so I don't know what it's like now. And the increasing number of fast food, fast lives, fast eating... It means that families eat together less and less. In fact, we had to hit time out in our family on Saturday and say, wouldn't it be nice for us just all to eat together? We try to eat together, but Damaris is away, Jotham's out doing whatever he's doing, clubbing, working hard, earning a poor old crust for himself. You know, and there's like, we're never there. We're never there together. We never interact, take time. Everything's fast. You know, you think, please, just can we just slow down? Slow down. And so we're squeezed and prodded and cajoled by time pressure. And then on top of that, we've, we've been told that you've got an expectation of you've got to have your leisure time. Leisure time is, in fact, a fairly new invention. I, uh, I did some, I'm a geography teacher, by the way, so yeah, that's why you get these kind of stats. In 1800, only uh, 8,000 people out of a population of 9 million went on what's called a holiday. It was a very bourgeois, middle-class thing to take a holiday. Most people didn't take a holiday. They got holy days when the church said uh, everybody stops. But most of the time, they worked on through. There was no concept of holidays. And now we're in a situation where actually 92% of our population have actually taken a holiday abroad. Most people on average take three holidays away from home a year. Busy lives, busy information, busy uh, expectation of holidays, and we feel breathless with it. Now, this uh, pressure to fit in the busyness of time is not a new thing. So if, you turn, uh, if you've got a Bible, you may even have a Bible. I haven't got a PowerPoint this morning, so it might be a good one. I'm going to read a few verses from uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, which is kind of about in the middle of the Bible. Okay, but it's written probably by King Solomon. And it's a funny book because it's a mixture of it's a mixture of godly teachings and also some of the phrases and echoing some of the phrases of, of the culture of the day. 
So everything you read in Ecclesiastes isn't a word from God. Some of it's kind of the moans and stuff from people. And you mingle them together and it's hard to know who's talking. Uh, But I think it's a helpful one because actually even the confusion helps us with our own confusion about how we should manage our time. So the book starts, written by Solomon, King Solomon, uh, the son of David, uh, supposedly the wisest man apart from Jesus who ever lived. Um, This is how he starts his book. It could be written in the 21st century. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then he says, what do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The north wind blows, the south wind blows. Round and round it goes. And then verse 8 says, all things are full of weariness, more than one can say. There's this kind of endless toil. He even says, the sun hurries back to where it starts, you know, this sense of the day, I don't get enough time. So he's got this uh, sense of labor, this toil under the sun that's meaningless. And then in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'll just read verse 1, and then there's a list of other things that that, uh, he says. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for everything under heaven. And then he lists a time to sow and a time to reap, a time to scatter stones and all of that. And then in verse 9 he says, What does the worker gain from their toil? I've seen the business that God has given to his children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God has put eternity into men's hearts. Yet we cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And then he says, I know there's nothing better for them to rejoice and enjoy good life, that they may eat and drink and find satisfaction from their toil. This is the gift of God. And then in verse 22, he almost flips it over. He says, yet I see there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Lord, as we look at this uh, time and work and rest We can even feel Solomon's seeming contradictions between there's nothing better than to rest and to feast with your friends and there's nothing better than to work hard and be satisfied in your toil. And Lord, we feel the meaningless ticking of the clock, the time passing over and over. Life gone so quickly, spent on jobs sometimes that seem meaningless, work that seems meaningless. We're desperately running from leisure time to leisure time, trying to fit in our lifestyle around an already busy, crowded schedule. And we pray, Lord, help us. Help us through these verses. Help us through uh, what I'm going to say to try and think again about how we'd manage our time. In Jesus' name. Okay, so human society hasn't advanced a lot, is it? They're still saying, what's the point of relentless working, everything exhausting, everything so full of weariness? But there's hints, actually, before we drill into some of Solomon's stuff. There's some hints of God's big picture in here. So let's just pull that out. Uh, One of the points that Solomon says, God has made everything beautiful in his time. Almost like there's echoes of the creation story. And we find in the creation story some helpful things about work and rest. 
So Solomon referring to the creation story, if you, if you, uh, uh, if you want to jump around your Bible, you can. I'll tell you roughly where they are. In Genesis one, uh, 2, verse 1, it's the, it's, there shouldn't be a chapter heading there, by the way. It's very unhelpful. It should have come a couple of verses later. But basically, it's the end of the creation narrative. The day one, he said this. Day two, he said this. And then you get to day seven. It says, um, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because uh, on it, he rested from the work of creating he's done. Now, obviously, God doesn't get tired. Isaiah uh, 40 says God doesn't get tired or weary. So obviously, God had done six days work. It's not like, well, I need to have a holiday now because he doesn't get tired or weary. But there's a sense where God is showing us the rhythm of, of work and rest. Six days of working and then rest. And he sets this pattern for humanity. But it's almost as if God, although he's rested, is still working. That's an interesting thing. Can you be working and rested at the same time? I think you can. Maybe we'll come to that at the end. But then a few uh, verses further down in um, Genesis chapter uh, 2, he says this, Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. So it sounds like work to me. I'm not a very good gardener. Uh, If you like gardening, it may feel like recreation to you, but I guess to do any garden at all feels like work. But there's definitely some work. God is stooping down and planted a garden. And then it says, further down, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This sense of God is working. There's this almost this image of God stooping down to plant a garden and then he says almost to to humanity, now you've seen what I've done. You've seen how I've stooped down and got my hands dirty to plant a garden. Now I want you to do the same. And, And that's what God does when God is working in creation. He's bringing order. There's chaos and he brings order out of chaos and then fills it up. And that's what God's doing through Genesis chapter 1. And then he almost gives, God, gives the, 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 uh, the man, Adam, uh, the, the same idea. He says, now you need to do this with this little garden. You're not gonna, you, are, you can't do the whole universe, but you can work with this garden. I'm going to show you how it goes. I'm going to plant a garden. And then you're going to work it. You're going to bring order out of chaos and fill it with fruitful plants and fruitful good things. And then he says to him, you now go and do the same over the whole, whole earth. In fact, in chapter 1, he'd said this to the uh, man and woman, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. It says rule over or subdue or bring order to it and bring rule. So that, that there's a work like God has asked, uh, uh, planted a garden, brought order in, to the universe, and now says to us, now this is your job. And that's still our job. It's still our job to bring, as it says, order out of chaos, to be creative, to bring uh, things uh, to fill the whole earth with God's goodness in his fruitfulness. And so this is not mind-numbing, repetitive work. I've been to um, Robin Island and seen where uh, Nelson Mandela uh, was imprisoned for 25-plus years, 27 years. And uh, basically there's a quarry, a stone quarry, and they just sat day after day smashing rocks. I don't know what they did with the rocks. I don't know if the rocks were taken to do roads or whatever they did with them. But there was just some mind-numbing work. And we can have this sense of this, well, you know, that's what work is. It's this mind-numbing, repetitive, rock-crushing thing. God has set work, but it's not like that. It's a brilliantly creative, it's a kingly kind of thing to, to bring rule and order out of chaos, to bring uh, creative things and good things, to bring fruitfulness. It says, be fruitful and increase. And it says, God planted a fruitful garden in Eden. So this is kind of satisfying fr- work. It's not a bad thing. Work in this point is not a bad thing. 
And actually you find this idea that, that of pattern of work and rest, as, as you probably all know in the Ten Commandments in Genesis, Genesis, uh, Exodus 20, uh, God says this, remember the Sabbath day, that's the seventh day, keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath. For who? To the Lord your God. But actually later on Jesus says it's not made for God. He doesn't need to rest. It's made for us to do, take some time, not just to work, but to concentrate on God and to rest. And he's, so it's almost interestingly he's saying to the people, saying to the people in, in, in Exodus, you're a people who've been slaves. Remember, they were taken out of slavery. Think about slaves, don't get a holiday, don't get time off. And he's saying to them, now I'm going to reconstitute what it's like to have work as a positive thing. You're going to work and then you're going to rest. And so it's interesting, before all the sociologists talked about uh, work-life balance, God's talking about work-life balance. He's talking about seven days you should work. We say, well, seven days, who obviously is a bit Victorian, and uh, one day you should rest. But something seems to have gone wrong, doesn't it? Something seems to have gone wrong with this kingly, creative, purposeful, earth-filling, order out of chaos work. Something seems to have gone wrong because Solomon says this, doesn't he? He says, meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from their rock crushing, their endless labors at which they toil under the sun? Something seems to have gone wrong with work. You can almost hear his weary finger pointing at God. What does the work again from their toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. It's almost as if, God, it's your fault that we're busy and exhausted. You've created a world that's, that's not fit for living in. But actually, if you read the story, continue the story in Genesis chapter uh, 3 after chapter 2, where we were earlier about God planting a garden, you find out that something has gone wrong. You know the story if you've been around church, but you haven't. Bear with me. God says to Adam, what happens is he plants a tree, gardens, uh, humanity says, I want to be like God, I'm going to self-determine, I'm not going to rule like you, I'm going to be a grasping person who grabs everything to myself, I'm not going to be fruitful and bring order out of chaos, I'm going to bring everything to me, I'm going to make everything about me. And God says uh, to him, it says, uh, therefore, God said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, by the way, it's not saying, don't listen to the voice of your wife. It's actually saying, don't listen to the voice of your wife if she's telling lies. And that replies, also, don't listen to the voice of your husband if he's telling lies. And those lies have come from the serpent. They've come from the liar who says, God's bad. God's holding out of you. He's holding out the best for you. He's put you in this garden to enslave you. He's not put you in this garden to empower you. And so they, don't, they believe the lie. And it says, they ate from the tree that we were commanded not to. And then it says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it, eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your daily bread. You are come from the ground, you are taken from the ground, and you shall return to it. So there's this sense now where where work, instead of being a good thing, is this curse. It's almost like where uh, the, the garden was working with us. Nature was working with us. It felt like a, a good thing to be planting a garden alongside God. Suddenly it becomes hard work. It becomes toil. There's stones, there's thistles. It becomes like my garden. It becomes full of weeds and that the chaos takes over again instead of order. And it becomes hard work in the sense of you're just going to have to sweat just to get enough food. And that has been the existence of most people through most of uh, time. We are the exceptions. I'm not saying you don't have to work hard, you don't have to sweat, but we don't have to sweat to survive, to eat. 
There are people who have to do that still. But we're not those people. We live in this time of actually where we think we've got leisure and we've got other things. We don't seem to have to sweat. Food seems to come nicely and easily to our tables. But this sense of the, it's hard work. So we've got this work is good. God created it. And we've also got this work is toil and pressure. And you see those two things almost in what Solomon writes, this schizophrenia of human, human thinking about, is work good, is work bad, should I have more leisure, shouldn't I have leisure, how that's working. So Solomon says this, it's almost like, make your mind up, Solomon. So in the, be read in Ecclesiastes 3, it says, nothing is better than eating, drinking, rejoicing, and enjoying the good life. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? I'll read that again. Nothing is better than eating, drinking, rejoicing, and enjoying the good life. I would say that is, you're more likely to find a book on that in, a, in Waterstones, on, you know, cooking and eating and wine and holidays and places to go. You're going to find that, oh yes, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Eat, drink, rejoice and enjoy the good life. We're all searching for the good life. And then two lines later he says, Not it, nothing is better, I think make your mind up, nothing's better than eating and drink, drinking. Then he says, nothing is better than man should rejoice in his work. And there's this kind of schizophrenia. Well, is it work or is it leisure? What's good, what's bad? And so I just want to pull through some of those ideas about is work good or is it bad? What time did I start, by the way? Time already is ruling me. And now I've mentioned it, it will rule you. So there you go. I shouldn't have said that, should I? But let's, okay, so I want to pull out some dangers. So, so actually, there's, if you think work is good... Or you think work is bad, there's pressure in both of those. If you think leisure's good or leisure's bad, there's pressure in both of those. And some of them think all of those things at once. Yeah, we can think work is good, but I hate that. I moan about, my, moan about the teachers, moan about the headmaster, that's what everybody does. The teachers moaning, 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 moaning. 384 pieces of legislation, how can I keep up, blah, 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 blah. All this paperwork, you know, moan, moan, moan. But yet... Oh, I love it. Isn't it great? Interacting with the kids, creative. So we've got this tension of good work. And, and leisure. You feel, well, isn't it great to have leisure? It's wonderful to have leisure. But also there's a temptation. Maybe it's not so easy if you're uh, older to just sit and do nothing. I'm trying not to catch uh, any particular teenager's eyes. Uh, they say, oh, yeah, I just can kick back and have fun and it's all fine. So we've got this sense of we're trying to fit these things in. We don't know quite a go. So let me just try and pull some, some out for you. I'm sorry I haven't got a PowerPoint. I hope you're tracking with me. We've said so far, work is good, but also work is a challenge, and time has become faster and faster and changing and changing how we're going to cope with it. So the first thing is I think that we can uh, have what I'm calling the dangers of a life centered on work. See if this is you. Do you find yourself working longer and harder? Do you keep telling people that I'm tired and busy? Do people say, I know you're busy, I'm sorry to bother you? Do you sometimes think that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible? Do you struggle to sleep because you can't switch off because you're thinking about your work? You're checking your emails or voicemails at home. If any of those are true, then you might be dangerously work-centered. People are work-centered for all sorts of reasons. I've pulled out three. I think you can be work-centered... Obsessed with your work because you want the approval of others. Let me just read what I wrote because it's probably easier than trying to pull it out. So this is what happens if you're incented on the approval of others. You can't say no because you fear you might disappoint people or fail to live up to their expectations. You want to work 
your way to the centre of the organisation because you see that people at the centre are more popular or people at the centre have more friends or are more influential. Maybe you're fearful of being alone, so you fill your life with work, hoping people won't notice how empty you feel. And you're kind of working because you think, I want people to like me. You know, you, you feel, particularly in Christian circles, uh, the, 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 the Christian celebrity is interesting. So, so uh, I remember when we had PJ Smythe stay at our house, and my kids kind of joked and went, oh, we've got a minor Christian celebrity. And they, you obviously they feel like, well, if you're at the center of some organization, then obviously life is good for you. Everyone cooks you nice dinners and treats you as their best friend and all that. And then you get to the other thing where you think, well, if I feel like I'm on the edge, if I come to church and no one speaks to me, I feel vulnerable. And we, so we have these things. And you have it in your workplace. Um, you might think that you, know, you want people to like you. You want people to think you're great. So people ask you, I find this in my job, um, you, as a pastor, you, you, you're supposed to be caring. I am caring. Just check that with you. I am caring. But there's this sense of, <laughs> but there's this sense of, it's hard to say no. Somebody says, I need this or what that or whatever. It's hard to say no. Because you feel like, well, you're going to let people down or there's going to be this thing. Now, I'm not saying, look, I'm so busy, don't get in touch with me. I'm not. But I'm just saying that, that actually you can feel this sense of expectation. Well, you're a Christian. You're supposed to care. You're a Christian, you're supposed to do We feel this expectation, we feel it in our, in our workplaces. Naomi's, I won't say where she's working, but she's working in a, a school um, up the M5 from here. And her head teacher, it feels like her head teacher is like a workaholic. Works on Sundays, calls staff meetings all the time. And it's very difficult to say no to her because you feel like you're letting her down. And she's she basically saying, you know, the teacher's working all these hours. Oh, they, they, they owe us another 10 hours. Think you have no idea how hard these people are working. But there's this sense of where you can feel that you don't want to let people down. Yes, could you have that done by tomorrow morning? I know Dan, not to blow his cover, but you know, he's working on something and he's, people are phoning him up from Canada and you know, he feels like, oh, I can't, I can't say no, it's difficult. Work just invades and invades and you don't want to let people down. You don't want to disappoint people. So maybe you just don't want to value the approval of others. And it's a dangerous place. Because actually what happens is you're driven to keep saying yes. You're driven to keep uh, uh, saying to people, yes, of course I'll do that. Yes, will you give me a lift? Yes, I'll do. Will you do that? Yes, of course I will. And what happens is you get this codependency because then if you then say no, you even feel worse. You know, you think, well, you know, if you care a little bit and then pull out, you think, well, I feel worse than, than if I'd never done it at all. And so you get this kind of codependency and the people get care, who are cared for want to be cared for more and more and you feel the obligation to care for them more and more and it's a, an unhelpful codependency. You're driven to keep saying yes because people will uh, approve of you. Maybe you're dangerously work-centered uh, because you need to prove yourself. I think this is probably more nearer to the home for me. Uh, you get a sense of identity. See if this is you. You get a sense of identity or meaning or purpose. You feel significant when you say you're busy. If I said to you, oh, I've had a really slack week this week, I haven't done a lot, you know, kicked out, played golf, hung out with my mates, think, yeah, what a slacker, what are we paying him for? Yeah? But if you say, man, I've had such a busy week, the pastoral pressures, sermon preparation, you don't know what I'm carrying. I, I often say to church leaders, hey, there's a lot of people with harder jobs than you. But none of us like to say I'm not busy, do we? Nobody will say, oh, I've got a job, but we don't do nothing. <laughs> you know, it's not really very important. I'm just 
kicking out, wasting time. We always man, I'm so busy. Because being busy makes us feel important, makes us feel significant. And also then, but you can press on and think, right, if I do something really successful, if I'm a great dentist, then, then you know, my parents or my family or my friends are going to say, I'm, I'm good at this. Or, you know, I, so many of you work in places I can't mention. If I'm a great Bible teacher at the Bible Society, everyone's going to invite me to speak at conferences and I'm going to be amazing. If I find, do you find oil? I don't know what you do. But if, if I find oil, the company's going to go, gush, finance. You know, we'll all be loved and, and if I'm successful, I'll feel great. And, um, and so you feel this sense of being valued and fulfilled by your work. Your, your self-esteem, this kind of word of psychology, but it's not a very Bible word, is based on your performance. You know, you've got performance criteria, you've got appraisals, how are you doing? Nobody likes to be doing badly. It's a dangerous place because actually you hang in the core of who you are. It hinges on your ability to prove yourself, so you're driven to do more and more and more. Maybe the last one of the work-centred uh, challenge or the danger of being work-centered. Uh, I think people be work-centered because they want to be in control. Here's an interesting one. If, if you are work-obsessed and you're working and working and working, it might be because you feel, I want to shape every decision. So I'm a school governor and, and I, I want to be in on the central committee, it's not the Communist Party, but it feels like, no, I want to be in in the central decision-making because I feel like I've got something to contribute. But in a subtle way, that can be, oh, I like to be in control. I, I, I like to have my way. I like to do things. People who like to be in control are always right. Unteachable. I don't know if you've got those kind of people at work. Always right. Always their idea. Even if it's your idea, it becomes their idea. They always feel it's got to be about them and they want to shape every decision. Maybe if they're your boss, you're, you're scared that they're going to sack you. So you want to be in control. If you are a boss and you're controlling, you, 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 you love it when everyone's doing what you say. There's this kind of addiction to power, this addiction to feeling you need to have your voice heard. It's a dangerous place, is control. Because what you're, what you're doing is you're, you're emotionally trying to grab the steering wheel of everything around you. Uh, I, there, there was a moment once, and sorry to embarrass my wife, there was a moment once we were in the car and we were having a little argument and we were going down the M1. This is many years ago now. We're fully sanctified now. <laughs> we're going down the M1 and Naomi grabs the steering wheel. <laughs> well, we're having this conversation. She grabs the steering wheel and I think, no, I'm in control. No, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, we pull off and it all calms down and it's fine. But, but you know, it's not a good thing. <laughs> It's not a good thing to try and grab the steering wheel. Sometimes you want to be in control, but actually conflicting with authority. I find if you're in a position of authority, people are constantly trying to undermine your authority, constantly feeling, kicking back at the authority. If you're a student and you're in that age group that, your, that culture has told you authority is bad, you need to take power, empower yourself. But what happens the way you do that is to work harder and harder and harder at being competent, being good, at having your voice heard, and you're constantly trying to grip, the grab the steering wheel of every aspect of your life. You can do that in your marriages. So we get this need to prove ourselves, need to be in control, need to have people approve of us. And we're always moaning because we're always working, but there's something wrong inside. Maybe the... What about the other side? Let's flip it over and then bring conclusion. I'm aware that time is going, he said. Uh, the dangers of a life centered on me time. I think me time is a really new concept. I don't know when the idea of me time first developed. 
You know, I, it was, certainly wasn't around in the 1960s. It's hard to believe I was born in the 1960s, I know. But it wasn't, <laughs> around, it wasn't around in the 1960s. I don't know where it sort of crept in. It feels very 21st century to me. This kind of me time. I need to have my me time. I need to have my, my leisure time. And it's interesting about leisure because we feel that, um, you know, why? Why not have a life full of uh, unending leisure? Why not have a life of endless holidays, endless living the life? One of the p- things that happens when people win the lottery is they immediately say, oh, I'm going to quit my job. Some don't, but most say, that is it. I'm done with work. It's leisure for me now. Yeah? I don't know what that does to you, but this, this idea we'd much rather be a consumer than a producer. We'd much rather be served than serve. Because there's something about us that feels I've got a, lot, a right to leisure. If you tell yourself you need another night in, see if this is you. If you tell yourself you need another night in, another evening of me time, another weekend away, if you idle away your time on social media, if you're up to date on the latest TV box sets, if you look at your diary and it's just filled with yourself or your neat, impenetrable nuclear family, then you might be in danger of being centred on me time. We are trying to talk in our house about what have you done for Team Kellett? What have you done for Team Kellett in your life? Not just what have you done for yourself, what have you done for us? And actually, Team Kellett needs to ask the question, what have you done for everybody else? Because it's so easy to wrap yourself in a nice little family and go on your weekends away and your three holidays a year and go abroad and have your me time and have your gadgets and and you never give a moment's thought for how you're going to spend your time. It's me time. It's selfish. You might be rest-centered or me-time-centered because you're lazy. Let's just knock that one on the head. Uh, The New Living Translation says this, How long, in Proverbs, written by Solomon, How long will you lay in your bed, you slacker? I love it, eh? It's actually you sluggard, but that doesn't sound very nice, does it? Slacker sounds much more 21st century. How long will you lay in your bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of your arms to rest. And poverty will come on you like a robber. Maybe you're lazy because your life has always been comfortable. Again, I'm not trying to have a go at the people who are millennials, younger. But the fact is your life has been comfortable. The older you are, the more likely is your life to have been a challenge. A, because life just kicks stuff at you. But also because sometimes if you've come from a nice family, life's just been easy and comfortable. You might have had a messed up, crazy family, and you might say, hey, you've no idea, and I probably don't. But, but generally, you've had an easy life. We've just, uh, I don't know why we're watching it. We're watching I'm a Celebrity. I've obviously got far too much time. I'm afraid it's just on in the house, honestly. And, 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 and I think uh, last night, Naomi said, what is it about the youngsters? Is this young guy, is it Georgie from Union J? Is anyone, there's only us watching it, isn't there? You, none of you are so sad. Thank you. And Naomi said, well, what is it about youngsters they've got no was it backbone or something they've they've got no stickability yeah so there's this sense of where if you've had a an easy life so you know you know that great monty python sketch don't you i'll have to put you in you know oh if you tell the kids that today they won't believe you 
said, well, we used to have to go to bed. We had to go to mill five o'clock in the morning. We had to pay mill owner to, to go to work. He used to whip us within an inch of our life. You know, say luxury. We used to have to pay mill owner to do that. We had to make our own bed from Amazon nails. We had to lick the road clean with our tongue. Luxury. We, the mill owner used to kill us in the morning, drag our body through the streets. <laughs> and, you say, and you tell the kids that today, and they won't believe you. You've got to Google it. It's brilliant. Sorry. Now, it's just for those older ones. <laughs> but there's this sense of life has been comfortable. You can allow your family or, your, or the state to provide for you, and, and you fail to bend your back. Or maybe you're lazy because you're proud, and you think hard, hard work is beneath you. And you've got a right to more me time. You know, there's those people who can't say no. If you ask them to do a job, they can't say no. But there's also those people who can't say yes. You ask them to do a job, they're always too busy. They're always doing something more important. There's always some me time, some priority in their little family and their life that's more important than doing something for something else, somebody else. And it's a dangerous place if your desire for leisure is all about me time. Actually, leisure is built on the back of others. Solomon's wealth, if you know anything about Solomon, he was incredibly wealthy. He had a, a me-time life of excess, drinking, a harem full of women, a, an army full of slaves to facilitate his me-time. The empires of Rome and uh, Egypt and Rome and Britain were built on the backs of slavery. You go to Bristol, you think, oh, that's a nice part, Clifton, isn't it? Well, the mansions, where were they built? Built on the backs of slaves. Liverpool, London. Big cities built on the backs of slaves. Why do you think we're rich? Is it because we're white and clever? No. It's because we built an empire built often on the backs of slaves. And we enjoy that luxury now. If you go on holiday and you go to the beach and you sit on the beach and you're sunning yourself in, I don't know, in the world's nowhere safe to go on holiday anymore. Let's say Tunisia, but you're probably not going to go there anymore. But, or you're sunning yourself on holiday. Somebody's coming along, some guy's coming along, probably an African guy, he's coming along trying to sell you drinks. You know, aqua minerale, a lot of whatever, trying to sell you drinks and you just kind of, oh, please stop bothering me. You feel, well, I've got a right to sit on the beach because I've earned my leisure time. You think he doesn't deserve any leisure time? Do you think he's not working harder than you? Actually, the fact is that you're probably just rich as an accident of your birth, not because you've worked hard for it. For 20% of the world's population, me time is a distant dream. They live on a dollar a day, a dollar a day, and they've got no chance of me time, no chance of leisure. And we obsess I need some me time. One in five of the world, it's not even a distant possibility. But for us, it's an entitlement. Maybe we've grown comfortable and lazy. Maybe you become self-centered, indulgent or greedy. 21st century business, I think, is often driven by our lifestyle. Let me just ask you this question. So your lifestyle is often about uh, you mimic other people. Our lifestyle's based on other people's lifestyles, isn't it? I don't, I don't know many Christians or otherwise who look at the Western lifestyle and say, I'm not living that lifestyle. Who say, well, I'll live more simply. I'll live more Jesus-like. You say, how oh, would Jesus live then? If he lived now, he'd definitely be living like me. But actually, we're taking our cue and our model and our complexity and our business of life and our desire for leisure from, not from the Bible. We're taking it from everybody else. 
So what we do, the way it works, our priority is that we have this aspirational, unconscious or conscious aspirational lifestyle. We get the job that suits that lifestyle if we can. And then we buy a house that serves the job to suit the lifestyle. And then after that, there might be a little bit left over for community and friendship and family and church. Because we've actually decided that me time and lifestyle is what we're after. The quest for relaxation and money drives everything we do. Jesus said, do not set your heart on what the world looks after. Do not ask what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things and your father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and these things will be given to you. In our busyness, we often don't seek God's righteousness first. It's often last. People say to me, oh, God is first in my life. And then it's my family, and my time, and of course I've got my career. And church is some other entity that's not really anything to do with God or Jesus. And I'm not saying this to guilt you into working. I'm just saying, what do we do? What's our priority? What are we seeking first? What are we running after? I know some churches preach a prosperity gospel where they say, if you put $100 in the collection, God will give you $1,000 back. Those churches, often it's the pastor that's getting rich, not them, but that's by the by. Uh, But actually, some of us have settled for a kind of subtle prosperity gospel where actually if if you're a Christian uh, and you live a nice Christian life, then there's a guarantee that life's going to be comfortable, that you're going to have lots of me time on holidays and it's going to be comfortable. And we're never going to have pressure. We're never going to have persecution. And God's never going to ask us to give up our easy lifestyle or give up our money because we've become centered on ourselves. We've watered it down, spent our time on our aspirational lifestyles, and it comes some distance before building God's church and his kingdom. Okay, let's try and, and it's black hole living. Let's try and land this down. Okay, so I would say there's a God first life somewhere in here, a joy of a God first life. Nothing is better, says Solomon, than a man should rejoice in his work, and nothing is better than eating and drinking and rejoicing in the good life. In fact, both are true. They're not contradictions. Both are true. You should enjoy your work and you should enjoy your leisure time. God, work is God's mandate, as I've said, to fulfill uh, His creation order on the earth to bring peace and wholeness and shalom. If you put God first, you will not work for the approval of others. There's a book called When God is Small and People Are Big. It's this obsession with what people think about me. If we put God first, then we won't be people-pleasing. We'll hear the approval of our Father, and He approves us in our work. Whatever job we have, however successful we feel we are, He, He approves of us. We don't need to fear people's opinions. Jesus, in His work, was not approved. The majority of people didn't love Him. He wasn't a superstar Christian celebrity. He was despised and rejected and people hated him. He was not approved. But he said he set his face to go to Jerusalem and they said, well, don't do that because you're going to be crucified. He said, no, for this hour, for this work I've come. This is what I'm doing. I'm laying down my life for people. He wasn't looking for the approval of others. But yet, because of his death on the cross the father speaks approval over you this is my beloved one in whom i delight you don't have to work in your job for approval driven working for approval god already gives you approval 
You don't have to work in your job to prove yourself, to justify yourself. In fact, who is the one that justifies us? Who's the one who makes us, proves us, and gives us our identity and gives us our purpose? We're justified by grace. You know what that means? It means it's a free gift of God. You think you've got to work harder and harder and harder to justify your existence, to prove who you are and all that, but actually God gives you it free by his grace. We don't need to be in control because the very nature of becoming a Christian is surrendering control. It's saying, God, you are in control. Jesus, when he was at seemingly at his most powerless, was not out of control. It, the Roman governor says, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or set you free? And Jesus replied, you have no power over me unless my Father in heaven is given it from above. We need to understand that God is in charge. I've been saying to people this week, we're not God. You can't be God. You've got to let God be God. You can't be in control of every situation, manage every circumstance. You can't. When it comes to rest, we need to understand that whether we're working or resting, we do it to the glory of God. God's rest is not lazy, self-indulgent me time built on the hard work of others. God's rest is not consuming and being served. God's rest is not an aspirational middle-class lifestyle. God's rest is not a period of inactivity for one day a week. Yes, God's rest may include meals with people and enjoying the good life. God's rest may include time off. But actually, God's rest is much more, and I'm finishing here, this is much more about where you are centered. What are your foundations? Self-centeredness leads to you seeking your identity and purpose in your efforts and your work and your achievement and your leisure. But it always leaves you empty and exhausted. God's rest is summed up neatly in the word shalom, which means wholeness and completeness. Jesus says, shalom, wholeness and completeness, I leave with you. My shalom I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. So therefore, do not let your hearts be anxious and fearful. We are driven by a world that says it's going to give us satisfaction, that we're going to have fulfillment and happiness and peace. It says do it in your work and do it in your leisure time, but we only will find fulfillment and satisfaction, shalom, wholeness and peace, when we seek first God's kingdom. We're going to break bread in a moment, but let me just say God's rest is about having your affirmation and identity in him. God's rest means that you can be busy, but never emptied. Poured out, but never emptied. Interestingly, Jesus says, my father is always working, but yet he's seated on the throne. What we need to do is work from a place of rest. Work from a place of being centered on God. Work from a a place of being centered in his priorities, in his purposes. I believe that people who do that can work, can be poured out and never emptied can work hard in their jobs, doing the creation mandate to make the world beautiful, to give God's blessing and love where they are, and also can have time and friendship. And it's not that we have to squeeze God into that. We need to understand that both work and leisure is God's purpose, but we must put Him first. Rest means that even when we're very busy, we're not running after the world desires. God's rest is not merely a day to stop activity, But God's rest is eternity. Solomon puts it like this, finish. God has put eternity into the hearts of man. I want to ask you the question. We're going to break bread now, actually, guys, if you want to uh, come back for a moment. But I want to ask you the question. 
Are you living in the light of eternity? Are you doing your job, running your diary, doing your leisure, doing your family, doing your work? Are you doing it in the light of eternity? Or are you trying to prove yourself, justify yourself, win approval of others? Are you, have you become lazy or, or conformed to the patterns of this world? Or have you said no, money and pleasures and aspirational lifestyle, they're going to go? The friend and affirm, the affirmation of people, that's going to go. Leisure time, three holidays a year, comfy life. Howard, I'm speaking it to myself, that's going to go. Solomon, in the middle of all this question about meaningless and what happens, he said, I've put eternity in the hearts of men and women. The psalmist says, be still. Be still. And know that I'm God. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.